Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, you know, I do this every Sunday. Am I too loud? A little bit. Okay, there we go. Uh, we do have an adult dinner uh, coming this Tuesday evening, and there's a sign-up sheet. And so if you would like to join us, we encourage you to do so. Just put your name down, and we just have a wonderful time of fellowship together. And when I say it's adult night dinner, it's for all, anyone who's out of high school. So if you're a young adult, don't think, well, that's just for the old people. No, it's for everybody. We have some young people that come. Of course, to me, young is 50. But anyway, um, we do have some young people that come as well. If you'd open your Bibles along with me to Leviticus and uh, chapter 6, that's where we will be beginning. But let's pray first. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name because there truly is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. And I ask, Heavenly Father, that you would come in all of your power and in all of your glory and by your Spirit minister your word to our hearts that our lives might be full of you, that we would no longer be struggling after the things of this world, but we would be seeking the things, the only thing that is tangible, and that is salvation. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that in our salvation we would walk in such a way that we would bring honor to your name and others into the kingdom. And so now come, and Lord, I pray that you would use me to minister your word to these, your precious people, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. I don't know why when we were singing that last song, it re, you know, my mind is, goes in crazy ways anyway, but you know, a lot of you probably are aware of the fact that one of the big political things that you've been hearing about in the news is whether in the census they should ask a person if they're a citizen or not. But you know, there's something beyond that, and that is our citizenship in heaven. And the Bible says that we should be thankful that we have this citizenship in heaven. But here's the point. No one goes to heaven unless they're a citizen of heaven. And it's very easy to become a naturalized citizen of heaven. It's simply saying, Jesus, forgive me a sinner. Come and rule over my life. And by his Holy Spirit, he will do it, and you are a citizen of heaven. Because we have to understand, this life is not about this life. This life is about the life to come. Our reward isn't here and now. Our reward is then. Now, the reward that we do have in this life is the peace and joy that we can experience walking with the Lord. You know, one of the things that probably most of you have become aware of, even the younger uh, of you in, the, in our congregation, is the fact that life can be very difficult. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you woke up and it was just like, oh, here's life. What was that crazy show that Jim Carrey was in where he was on, uh, he was on a TV set and, and he thought that was life? The Truman Show. And everything was perfect and good and this and that, you know. But that's not really the way life is. Every one of us, we have difficulties and problems. If you're, sm if you're young and you're going to school, you're going to have you know, grades you're trying to achieve. You're going to have friends you're trying to work things out with. And we all have our problems and difficulties. But the reality is that as a believer, we have a joy and a peace that goes beyond the things of this life. Because anyone who thinks that fame 
and riches and some, you know, any kind of success is going to bring them the peace they're longing for, you're sadly mistaken. The highest suicide rate is among the most successful people. We have to understand that money literally cannot buy you happiness. Now, I know Frank has a um, dirt bike shirt that he wears, and it says, money cannot buy you happiness, but it can buy you a new dirt bike, and that's close. So, I don't know if I fully agree with the theology of that, but anyway, um, the point is, money really can't buy you happiness. It's not a matter of the things that you've accumulated. It's a matter of who you have a relationship with, and that's Jesus Christ. When you have a walk with the Lord, it brings you peace. And when we study Scripture, we have to realize that everything that was written in the past was written for our learning, that through endurance of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So everything that was written, even in Leviticus, is able to really encourage us and help us to see what it means to be a believer. Now, as we study Leviticus, of course... Pastor Frank Jr. and I have uh, both said this over and over again. It's very repetitive, and it seems to, to be sometimes, you know, even mundane. But in reality, it's not. It is repetitive, but it's repetitive only in the fact that these are lessons that we need to learn. And it's also a great encouragement. We're going to find in this, in this portion of Scripture, there's great encouragement to you and I. But also we have to realize that Leviticus is also showing us the importance of repentance, the importance of confession and repentance. Over and over again, Leviticus is pointing this out. That's what all these sacrifices are all about. Because there is never, ever an indication in Scripture, never anywhere, that somehow in this life we can overcome the sin nature. Now all of a sudden I'm above sin. I don't have any problems. I can walk without sin. There's never any indication of it. As a matter of fact, Scripture tells us there are consequences to sin. Therefore, it's so important for you and I to understand and to realize that we need to confess and repent. Because we are sinners and because we do fall to sin, we need to understand that God has provided a way out of the consequence of all of our sin by confessing and repenting. And that's what we're going to be looking at. Because, you see, saying you're sorry or even feeling bad about sin is not what it's about. It's about allowing God to change your heart towards sin. You know what I'm saying? We can be sorry about a lot of things, but in reality, we're sorry about the consequence. That's what we're sorry about. But once the consequence is over, oh, okay, now I can just do my own thing again. But we have to be repentant in the sense that we recognize this is harmful to me. I need to change. Now, one of the things that's interesting, at least these kinds of things I find interesting, is that the word for repentance in the Hebrew is shob. And it literally means to turn away from and to turn to. That's what it literally means. And in the Greek, methaneo, it means to think differently, to have a change of heart. And so we have to realize that repentance isn't just, you know, I'm sorry, I don't want to do that again. It means I've had a whole change of attitude. I'm turning away from sin, and I'm turning to God. There's a definite change. There is a conscious awareness that I'm moving from one direction to another, moving away from God and towards God because God is love. And because of God's love, 
He provides and continues to provide a way that we might be reconciled back to him. And when we've sinned, he provides for us repentance. And once again, repentance isn't just simply being sorry for your sin. Repentance is saying, Lord, give me a different heart. Lord, this is wrong. This is dangerous to me. Give me a different heart that I might walk in a right way with you. Listen to what it tells us here in 2 Corinthians 7.10. For godly sorrow produces repentance. Not worldly sorrow, not feeling you know, the bad for the consequences of sin. It's talking about godly sorrow, knowing, knowing that we are going against the will of our Father in heaven. You know, I don't know how many of you, maybe not all of you, but I can remember as a, as a child, there were times that you'd go out and you'd do things that your mother and father really didn't want you to do, and something that they probably never even knew about. But man, you felt guilty over it, didn't you? Because they might not know but you know, and you know it was in complete disobedience to what they asked you to do and what they taught you was right and wrong, and you just feel that, that kind of guilt from it. Well, that's what we're looking at here. God has shown us his word. He's shown us his way. And so when we do things that are contrary to what he's taught, it gives us a godly sorrow. Maybe no one else knows, but I know, and I'm sorry for my sin. And... In this particular portion that we're looking at today, it's all about sinning against our fellow man. And we're going to learn that sinning against our fellow man is actually sinning against God. And we're also going to find in this portion, it's all in relationship to money, finances, you know, nothing's new under the sun, right? And, and so the desire for riches have pulled many people uh, down a wrong path. And so we are, we are in Leviticus 6, starting with verse 1. Leviticus 6, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If a person sins and commits a trespass against the Lord... Now, he's telling us this is a trespass against the Lord, but look at how he trespassed against the Lord. By lying to his neighbor about what he has delivered to him for safekeeping, or about a pledge or about a robbery, or if he has extorted from his neighbor, or if he has found what was lost and lies concerning it and swears falsely, if any one of these things that a man may do which he, uh, which he sins, then it shall be because he has sinned and is guilty that he shall restore what he has stolen of the things which he has extorted of, uh, of, or that... Um, or what was delivered to him for safekeeping. In other words, I want you to keep this safe for me. And you say, ah, oh, gee, I don't know what happened. Someone stole it. And you still have it. It's talking about that kind of thing. Uh, or the lost things which he found. Or, uh, or, all that, or all that about which he has sworn falsely. He shall restore its full value and one-fifth more to it. So in other words, there is a penalty. Even though he was confessing and repenting and restoring it, there was a penalty of this one-fifth. And give it to whomever it belongs on the day of his trespass offering, and he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord, a ram without blemish from the flock, 
with uh, your valuation as a trespass offering to the priest. So the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any one of these things that we may have done in which we trespass. And so what is being pointed out here, as I mentioned earlier, is that sin against your neighbor is sin against God. And Jesus pointed this out in Matthew chapter 25. And remember he said, you know, when you did not do this for the least of these, you did not do this for me. And he was talking about, I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was hungry and you gave me food. And they said, when did we do this to you? And he said, when you've done it to the least of these, all people, you've done it to me. And so in, in relationship to that, it would be like if you knew your neighbor was hungry and you didn't provide food for them, you're doing that to Jesus. That's the whole point that's being brought out here. And so all of these sins that we're looking at here are pointing out the fact that when we don't treat our neighbor, our fellow man right, it's sinning against God, not just against our fellow man. Now notice in this portion um, that most of the sin that's being talked about here is in relationship to financial gain or even to covetousness. And I love in 1 Timothy 6.10, it tells us this. Listen. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith. In their greediness and pierce themselves through with many sorrows. So it's not telling us money is sinful or money is evil, because if the Lord has blessed you with financial gain, if the Lord has blessed you with money, praise God. It's saying the love of money. And so now if you have love for money and I'm going to do whatever I can to have that money and to hang on to that money, even if it, even if it means robbing from my neighbor or doing harm to my neighbor, I'm willing to do it because I love money. That's the root of all kinds of sin. Now, we have a great account of this. And this is in 1 Kings. And uh, if you ever get a chance, you, maybe when you get home, you might want to read the whole chapter, chapter 21 of 1 Kings. And uh, one of the kings, Ahab, he married a peach of a girl. Her name was Jezebel. And uh, she was just a peach. She was just awesome. But anyway, uh, King Ahab had this huge castle, had everything he wanted. And next to his castle was this little plot of land known, uh, owned by Naboth. And so Ahab was looking over his castle wall from the balcony, and he was looking down at Naboth's little portion, you know, parcel of land, and he thought, I want that land. I'd like to build a little, you know, put a little garden in there. So he goes to Naboth, and he goes, hey, look it, I really would like this piece of land that I can see right over the wall of my castle, and I really would like to put a garden in there. Would you please sell it to me? I'll give you more than it's even worth. And Naboth said to Ahab, I can't really do that. He said, if, you know, it's in my inheritance. And you have to remember, when the Jews came into the promised land, each family was given inheritance. And it's not just an inheritance from fellow man or like from your parent or uncle. It was an inheritance from God. And so this was the inheritance God had given Naboth. And even though the king was telling him, I'll give you much more for it if you just sell me this land. I'll give you more than it's worth. He said, I can't. This is my inheritance from God. And so King Ahab, being the man that he was, 
you know, a manly man, he went up into his room and he laid on his bed and sulked and wouldn't eat because he couldn't get the land. Now, I believe Ahab was doing partly, doing that partly on purpose because he knew his wife Jezebel, who was a real Jezebel. You know, she was a real conniver. And so Jezebel comes up and she goes, what are you laying in the bed sulking for and not eating? And he goes, well, I wanted Nabas land next to me, and he wouldn't give it to me. And Jezebel said, get up and wash your face. I'll take care of it. And she took care of it. And so she went and she told people, I want you to have a feast in honor of Nabath and invite Nabath to the feast. But then in the middle of the feast, I'm going to hire some scoundrels to stand up and accuse him of cursing God and cursing the king. And then you take him out and stone him to death. And they did that. Here, Naboth thinks, gee, people are being nice to me. So beware of those bearing gifts. You know, so and they, you know, he goes in and, and, oh, this big celebration. And all of a sudden, these scoundrels stand up and said, he's cursed God. He's cursed the king. And they took him outside and stoned him. And so then, you know, uh, word comes to Ahab saying, guess what? Naboth is dead. And his wife Jezebel says, go take the land. And so old uh, Ahab, he's thinking, you know what? Things have really worked out right. You know, I used my wife. I got her to do my dirty work for me by playing the victim and playing the, you know, feeling sorry for myself. And, and no one knows about this. No one knows about this at all. And so he gets all excited, and he's going down to take Nabath's property. And he's in, actually, in Nabath's garden. And here's what we read, picking up in verse 17 of that chapter. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishabite. You see, when no one else knows, or you think no one else knows, guess what? God does. He knows the secret things of your heart. And I don't say that to frighten you. Oh, God knows the secret things of my heart. I say that so that we recognize that we need to be open with the Lord. Lord, I know you know these secret things of my heart. I know you know these sins that lie within me. Lord, forgive me. I repent. I want to change. I want to follow you. God knows even when no one else does. So then, in verse 18... God is telling Elijah, the Tishabite, he says, Go down and meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Can you imagine? They falsely had this good man who feared God, accused, and put to death, and he's going to go in and supposedly you know, take his property. And then verse 19, the Lord is speaking through Elijah to Ahab. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Well, you might say, well, Ahab didn't murder him. Jezebel didn't even murder him. These scoundrels did. But he planned it. He was behind the whole thing. His covetousness for Ahab's land is what put all of this into motion. And so God is telling him, you know, the man uh, uh, you murdered, unbelievable. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is uh, Elijah talking to Ahab. Then say to him, 
This is what the Lord says. In the place where the dogs licked up Nabath's blood, dogs will lick up your blood, yes, yours. Wow. Things that we do in secret, God knows. And because all of us have done some pretty nasty things in secret, it is even a greater reason that we need to turn to the Lord and say, God, forgive me, a sinner. Remember the account that we read? It's in two of the Gospels, and where the disciples are in the temple, and you have... um, you know, this rich man come in with all of his fancy robes and this and that. And then you have the tax collector come in. And uh, the rich man, who was a Pharisee and, and thought he was such a righteous religious person, he's looking at the tax collector and he goes, Oh, thank you, God, that I'm not like this tax collector. But then the tax collector could only, he couldn't even look up to God. He was so convicted by his sin, and it says he beat his chest, and he said, God, forgive me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that man went home justified. In other words, he was forgiven by God, not the other. That man who was beating his chest, recognizing he was a sinner. Well, I've got a little secret. Don't let anyone tell you, or don't let anyone know that I'm telling you the secret, okay? This is the secret. You're a sinner, And so am I. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but the free gift of God is salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not just that initial salvation, it's that continuous forgiveness when we confess our sin to the Lord. Naboth tried to hide his sin and he died. And those that allow their sin to be exposed live. Remember when King David was confronted? Thou art the man. And David wept in repentance. He didn't try to hide it. He didn't deny it. He knew he was the man. Listen to what it tells us in Proverbs 14.9. This is one of those verses you should have underlined in your Bible if you don't already. Proverbs 14.9. Fools mock at making amends for sin, but goodwill is found among the upright. You see, they're foolish because they're more concerned about things. They're more concerned about money and popularity and, and, and uh, physical property than they are the things of God. And so we have to be willing to make amends for sin. And the only amends we can make for sin, brothers and sisters, is going to Jesus. Because Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe. Sin had painted a crimson stain, but he's made it white as snow. We need to go to Jesus. He's the only one who can forgive us. God, forgive me, a sinner. And when we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. First John 1, 9 makes that so clear. So we have to understand that when we read cases like this, it's an indication to us, that we, even if no one else knows, we know. And sometimes if God makes us, because in all these trespass offerings we're reading about, it doesn't ever say the other person knows about it. The other person doesn't know that you were stealing from them or covetous towards them. The other person doesn't know that. They, They weren't aware of it, but you know, and God knows. So Make sure you make that repentance and confession to him. Offer the proper sacrifice. 
which is confession and repentance. Then we pick up in verse 8 of chapter 6. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth upon the altar all night until morning. Now, you're reading some of these things, and you think, what does that have to do with me? What does that have to do with the New Covenant? We have to understand that everything in the Old Testament was a shadow of the real thing that would be coming through Jesus Christ. It was pointing the way. It was, it was giving us a roadmap to the coming of the Christ. So, uh, the burnt offering shall be on the hearth upon the altar all night until morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garments and his linen trousers. Pay attention to that. He shall put on, uh, he shall put on his body and take up the ashes of the burnt offering which the fire has consumed on the altar, and uh, he shall put them besides the altar. Then he shall take off his garments, put on other garments, and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. And the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not be put out. And the priest shall uh, burn wood on it every morning and lay burnt offerings in order on it. And he shall uh, burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Now, you understand that it's all about peace with God, isn't it? I mean, there's, in, until you have peace with God, you don't know peace. You really don't. You might have some temporary you know, respite from difficult situations and, and feel like you have some temporary peace. But until you have peace with God, you don't have real peace. You know, it's just like, you know, Vi and I have been married, you know, going on 49 years. And I always tell people, in fact, I just told a young couple this earlier. And this might sound corny and silly, but it's not. Vi and I, after all these years, not only love each other, we actually like each other. People say, well, what does that mean? You can love someone and not necessarily like them. You know what I'm saying? But the fact is, in order for that ability to like that person, to have that kind of communion with them, there has to be this kind of openness. You know, a willingness to say, you know what? I, I want us to work things out. I want things to go well. Well, see, let's say I do, I'm not going to tell you any particular thing. Let's say I do something that is really annoying by, and it causes some tension between us. And I realize it causes some tension between us, and so I go to Vi, gee, Vi, you know, I know this is causing tension between us. I'll tell you what, you know, I, I'm going to stop doing that, not... I'm going to really stop doing that. But then in my heart, I'm thinking, okay, now I've calmed Vi down, and, and I've got some peace between, with her. Now I'm going to go do my thing again, whatever it is. Okay? That hasn't resolved anything because it's not really from my heart that I'm desiring to change. I just want to remove the consequences and the problem of this particular situation temporarily, as it might be, well, there's no real peace. There might be some temporary respite there, but there's no real peace. But what if what I was doing that really bothered Vi, I'm not making you uncomfortable on me, what I was doing really bothered Vi, and then all of a sudden I recognized the fact 
that it really should bother her. It was wrong. I shouldn't be doing that. I'm, I'm in error. I'm making a mistake. And so I go and I say, God, help me. I want to change things. I don't want to be this kind of person anymore that's, that's really bothering Vi in this particular situation. Change me. Help me to be different. And, of course, the Lord is faithful and just, and he does forgive me, and he purifies me, and he makes me different. And now I have peace with Vi. Because that thing's gone. It's not just clothed in a different you know, outfit. It's not just painted a different color. It's not just masked over with a different... You understand what I'm saying? It's gone. Because I agreed with her. And now we have peace. Well, the difference between husband and wife relationship, that there are times that I might be wrong, but there are also many times I might be wrong. That was a joke. Many times, get it? Anyway, but you understand the point I'm making. There might be times that I'm wrong and there might be times that Vi is wrong. But in our relationship with God, we're always wrong. It's never God who's wrong. And so if we want to have peace with God... It's not just saying, okay, well, I know this is causing some problems with the Lord, so, yeah, God, I won't do it anymore, but I'm just saying that, and I'm going to go off and, 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 you know, do whatever I want to do. But if I'm really convicted and I recognize this is wrong, God doesn't want me to do that. It's really sin. I want to be changed. Lord, purify my heart. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me the strength to walk after the Spirit, not the flesh. Now I've got peace. And that's what we all want, is peace with God. And then in verse 13, the fire shall always be burned on the altar. It shall never go out. So we have two things here taking place. First, the sacrifice must remain in the altar in order, in order for it to be consumed. And also the fire must be kept burning. Now we understand that as Christians, Jesus is our continuous sacrifice. Jesus Christ died for our sin, past, okay, present, and future. He is our continuous sacrifice. But yet, the Bible commands us and encourages us that when we do fall to sin, even though we're believers, you know, understand, if you're a believer and you fall to some sin, it doesn't mean you're going to hell if you died. You're still saved. You're going to go to heaven. But the reality is that you're going to be getting there as going through the smoke, Scripture says. And I always tell people, when I get to heaven, I don't want my nickname to be Smokey. You know, I don't want to be getting there through the flames, through the smoke. So anyway, we confess and we repent before the Lord, and he's able to give us all of these promises because he's the continuous sacrifice for sin. But yet when we fall to sin in this life, in the flesh, it's important for us to confess and repent of it. Because to confess of sin is owning it. Because even though I'm a believer, and I belong to Jesus Christ, and I love the Lord my God with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength, I might do something that I know is wrong. And when I do, I need to take it to the Lord. Lord, forgive me, a sinner. That's why it tells us, in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, he says, I'm urging you in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. 
This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. But, see, the problem we have is that when we have fallen to sin and we take our trespass offering to the Lord and we're on the altar, when the fire gets hot, sometimes we want to crawl off. Okay, Lord, I, I really want forgiveness for this sin. You know, whatever it takes, Lord, I, I want this sin to be, to be eradicated from my life. And then the Lord starts allowing the fire of the Holy Spirit to work on us in order to give us the victory. It's like, well, maybe that's a little bit too hot. Maybe I don't really want that, Lord. Maybe that's too much. Well, the reality is we have to be willing to allow the Lord to do whatever it takes whatever it takes to give us victory over sin. And why does it mention, uh, I find it interesting, why does it mention, um, well, let me just say this first. We have to remember the Holy Spirit is a consuming fire. Isn't that what it tells us in Scripture? It consumes the old nature, but it purifies the new nature. Understand what I'm saying? It consumes the old nature, but purifies the new nature. I remember... Um, Back when I was in high school, I'm, I'm trying to look around here and see if there's anyone old enough that was in high school around the time I was in high school. But when I was in high school, even if you were in the Regents program, you know, taking the academic program, you still had to take shop. You know, how many of you, you young, young people don't even know what I'm talking about? But you still had to take shop. And it was just, you know... One of those things that would not fly today would be considered politically incorrect, but boys had to take shops so they could learn how to do things, and girls had to take home ex so they could learn how to cook and make dresses. I mean, really, everyone had to do it. But one of the shop classes that I took that I thought was so cool was metal shop. And one of the things that we did in metal shop when I was in high school was make a set of screwdrivers. So anyway, you take your metal... And you put it in the fire until it's red hot, and you bring it out, and of course you got all the proper equipment to do it, and you put it on this little anvil and take a hammer, and you're hammering out, you know, like a flathead, panhead screwdriver, you're hammering it out to make it perfect. Now, once you've done that, it's still not ready because the, the steel isn't tempered. Now, you get it red hot, and you put it right in the water and cool it quickly, and you take that metal and hit it with a hammer, it'll shatter. Because it's hardened, but it's not tempered. But then, if you take it and you put it in the fire until it's red hot, and remember, we, well, you guys don't remember, there's a chalk you put on it when it got to be a certain color, you knew to pull it out. And you let it naturally cool. Now this metal is tempered. It won't shatter, and you can put it in a screw and turn the screw, and it, it won't bend. Well, the thing we have to understand the Lord wants to work this kind of strength in us. And so we have to realize that we have to, be we have to be allowing him to put us in the fire long enough in order to burn away the dross that we can be taken out and by his Holy Spirit we can be tempered in a right way that now we're able to do the work of the Lord. We're able to serve him. Because the Lord desires to use you. And then when it talks about the priest putting on the linen garment, you have to realize that 
the altar of sacrifice was up in the air and probably about, you know, this high. And there was a ramp that went up to it. And when they wore their, their like, gowns, you know, their, whatever you call it, like robes that they wore for serving the Lord, it, when they were going up, if you, if you looked up under, you could see their nakedness. And so that's why they would put on the linen pants that it talks about so that their nakedness wouldn't show. You might be thinking, what does that have to do with anything? Because God doesn't want us to make sacrifices in the flesh. That was the point of it. He doesn't want our sacrifices to be made in the flesh. It has to be by the Spirit. Oh, Lord, I'll take care of this. I'll do it on my own. No, no, no. It won't be accepted. Our sacrifice has to be made in the Spirit. Lord, it's not me. Lord, I'm making a sacrifice of confession and repentance in the Spirit because I have grieved your heart. Forgive me, Jesus. That's not the flesh. That's the Spirit. And the Lord forgives now, um, I believe then the changing of the clothes that takes place before they take the ashes out to the clean place, it also speaks to us of our desire to put on the new nature of holiness, to take off the old nature of the flesh and put on the new nature of holiness. And um, I love what it tells us in Colossians uh, 3, 9 and 10. And it says, Do not uh, lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with its deeds and have put on the new man. So we have to put off the old man and put on the new man. And that's one of the reasons that I think it's so important for us to not allow the new man or the law of God to be somehow you know, washed over in the church today. Because I believe that there are many things that are just winked at in the church today. In today's church, that's no, not really sin anymore. It's not really sin because, you know, that's old-fashioned. Well, the reality is we take the old and put it away and we put on the new. Let me give you an example. In Galatians chapter 5, and I'm closing with this, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 25, listen to what it says. The acts of the sin sinful nature are obvious. You don't have to try to figure it out. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, listen to that, listen, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's serious, brothers and sisters. Those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know what that, you know what that means? They won't go to heaven. Now, you've heard me share this before, that all those sins that are mentioned in the Greek are in the continuous present tense. In other words, it's talking about those that are living a lifestyle of this kind of sin. It's not talking about someone who falls to sin. Probably most of us have fallen to all of these kinds of sins. Maybe not all, but we've fallen to some of these kinds of sins. But it's not our lifestyle. It's talking about a lifestyle of this kind of sin. And so if people are just winking and saying, well, things have changed, times are different, you know, God understands. God understands all right. He understands your sinning. 
If you're living a lifestyle of sin like this, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's not your pastor telling you that. This is the word of God saying you shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now, it goes on to say, because I love that it ends in the positive, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now understand, this isn't just what our expression is towards others, which it is, but it's also God's expression towards us. His love. Okay, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified this sinful nature with his passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So often we think we have an exemption to some of these commands. We have an exemption to some of these commands. Like you have young people that will say to me, but we love each other. Well, I'm glad you do. But that doesn't give you an exemption for sexual immorality. You understand what I'm saying? Well, I've had a hard day. Well, that doesn't give you an excuse for drunkenness. Well, my wife just ticks me off. Well, that doesn't give you an excuse to lose self-control and to act in a harsh, angry you know, way. The reality is we're not supposed to live like that. We have to realize that we belong to Christ. We are a new creation. And his Holy Spirit is able to continue working in us. Because here's the thing that I know. And most of you don't know this. My wife does. I can be a real jerk. I can sometimes think that I'm all it. I'll tell you what, there's probably no one as holy as me. You know, I'm probably just the best husband. You understand what I'm saying? We can get into these attitudes, but the reality is anything that is of any value, of any good that is in me, is from God. From God. And so my encouragement to every one of you, my dear brothers and sisters, because you, you might not understand the extent to which I love you guys. When I pray at night, I pray for my biological family and I pray for my church family. You're my family. We're part of the family of God, but we're also part of this particular family that meets at Berean Calvary. And I love you guys. And so the reality is, I want to share God's word with you in truth. So understand, I'm never reprimanding any of you. You know, if you walk out of church today and you're thinking, well, I'll tell you what, the pastor was really speaking to me today. You didn't get it. God was speaking to you today. The Holy Spirit was speaking to you today, not me. You know, it's not up to me to make any of you change or to do anything different than you're doing. It's up to the Holy Spirit and your willingness to allow him. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and we thank you for your word and for your truth and for your love and for the fact that you're long-suffering. Thank you for being long-suffering, Lord. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that if there are any of us here today 
that have things that we know we need to repent of, things that we know we need to change, that we would do so. We wouldn't wait. We wouldn't put it off. We would, even before we leave here, we'd make things right with you. And Lord, I pray that if there are any here who don't even know you, who maybe aren't born again of the Spirit, that they would make that simple confession. Forgive me, Lord, a sinner, and come in and take over my life. And Lord, I know you would do so and cause them to be a new creation, to be born again of the Spirit. And so, Father, come in all of your grace, mercy, and power, all of your Shekinah glory, and fall upon us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. God bless you, my friends.